Hey, welcome to 9394, a music podcast with Travis Roy. I had the opportunity to sit down with my friend Adam Thomas, who has returned after talking about REM last time. This time he came to talk about the 1993 album August and Everything After from The Counting Crows. On the previous episode with Adam, I mentioned that I was a big R.E.M. fan, but I really wasn't that familiar with the album Monster. It was among the albums that I kind of skipped in their discography. And every now and then on the show, I'll do albums that I'm pretty unfamiliar with just because I recognize their importance and want to talk to the person who wants to talk about that album. But this album, man, I mean, this is why I started the show. This is one of those albums that when I thought, okay, 93, 94, some of the best albums to ever come out came out in that time period. Some of my favorite albums of all time, such as this one. It's up there. Top five, probably. I mean, it's just, I love it. So here is me and Adam gushing about it. What can we say? You know, okay, yeah, here we go. Yeah, okay. trying to lick your incisors. There he is. That's yep, there he is. Yep, he's like, oh, you're talking about me. <laughs> he wants the attention. <sighs> he, doing he, good. he needs a lot of attention. You wouldn't think listening to my podcast that I have two dogs, because the other one's just always chill, but all right, and it looks like he's already, like, going to be a problem. All right. Uh, <laughs> oh, he'll be all right, I think. <laughs> all right, so you drove up, and you listened to the Counting Crows, August and everything after on the way up here plenty. I listened to it plenty this morning. You and I have both grown up listening to this album. It sounds like it's a pretty big album in your life. Yeah, it was, yeah. Me too. This is one of my all-time favorite albums. In fact, like, I've done some of my favorite albums on this show already, like Dinosaur Jr.'s Where You've Been, but this might be my favorite album that I've done on the show so far. Like, I put this on the last couple of weeks, and I'm just, like, in my car, like, yelling. I know every word, you know what I mean? <laughs> I know every word. I'm, like, feeling it. It's, like, a super emotional album. It's one of those. Yeah, your skin. It, it really is. Yeah, I started listening to it, and with the last time I came for Monster, I got to the point where I'm like, I need to listen to something else. Mm-hmm. And this, it had just been on repeat for the last like three days. Oh yeah. So like we're outside working, I got the headphones in, and it just starts all over again. First of all, with the Mr. Jones single. Of course. I that think one, we all did. Yeah, that was the first single off the album. So I got into it from there, but I didn't get into the rest of the album until I got into college a couple of years later. Oh, okay. So I listened to it. I liked it. And then Long December came out on their next album in 96. And I'm like, okay, I really like these guys. Yeah. And by that point, I was really getting into more music and listening going deeper and actually buying albums and listening to the whole album. So probably 98, 99, freshman year of college, I picked up the whole album and had it ever since. Gotcha. For me, this is yet another classic Columbia House poll. (laughs) In 94, I would have gotten it. Yeah, I would have heard Mr. Jones and that was a good single. I was like, okay, I'll try that album out. And that was the only song I'd heard at that point. And 
I've never, ever, ever stopped listening to it. I have so many great memories of it. Like, I remember that summer being in Canada on this houseboat all by myself where the rest of the family was off doing other stuff. Just like being on the lake in the water in a foreign land <laughs> as a 14-year-old, as a you know, like an hour away from where I actually foreign live. Foreign land of Canada. <laughs> right. But just like, I don't know, just laying there like on a dock and like listening to it on my Walkman and like looking at the stars and just, it's always kind of giving me that relaxing feeling. You know what I mean? Yeah, most of the time in college when I listened to it, it would be when I was walking to from class or walking at night, just relaxing. Yeah. So it wasn't music you listen to when you're doing something. It's more when you're trying to relax or take the edge off from the day. You would think, but I cleaned my house to it this morning. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, that proves me wrong, man. (laughs) Here's a question. Can you pick a best song on this album? I have my favorites. I mean, I have my but favorites, too. How many tracks are on this album? 11. Uh, yeah, I have 11 favorites. Yeah. <laughs> yeah like it, I was trying to rank them. Like, I listened to it in its entirety when I started to drive up here, and I'm like, okay, because I was having a hard time placing them. It, like, what's number one? What's number two? Yeah. And I started going through it, and I'm like, all right, I'll listen to each song, and I'll write it down, and then I'll decide, you know, one at a time. While and, you're driving, you're writing things down? <laughs> well, no, I was... <laughs> I had written it down, and I'm like, okay, okay just look over and put a check mark next okay, to it. Okay. I think of yes, yes or no. Gotcha. And I kept writing it, and it's just, some of the placements were hard. Yeah. I ranked them 1 through 11, but, I mean, sometimes they can be interchangeable. I think it's going to be dependent on the mood you're in and yeah. what you're thinking or what you're going through at that time. It's going to change the position of them. Yeah. What did you decide today, at least, is your number one? Number one is actually Murder of One. I think that's my favorite one on it. but then 9 and 10 before you get to Murder of One are kind of slowing it down and this is more of a pickup. Mm-hmm. But the message is just completely opposite, as happy as it seems. <laughs> so Dirtz wrote it thinking back on his life when he was little and not having any problems and his life is full of infinite possibilities, he said. Yeah. But then it's less like that when we grow up because we have to deal with relationships that are empty, stupid, and brutal, is how he described it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And then he said, if you can't break the chain, you end up a murder of one for something. Which, murder of one is a nursery rhyme from back in the day. A murder of crows. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I actually did research on this because I was reading it and I'm like, okay, I'm going to go back in time and figure this stuff out. Yeah. So, murder of one is a nursery rhyme first written down in 1780. Up a hillside in the snow. Casting shadows on the winter sky As you stood there counting crows One for sorrow, two for joy Samuel Johnson and George Stevens, which was plays William Shakespeare. Okay. And the way they quoted it was one for sorrow, two for mirth, three for a redden, and four for death. And it was just those four, that's all it was. But in the song, if you listen to it, he actually lists seven of them. Yeah. And there's actually 13 in most modern 
as they count them. I've never heard this before. I've been aware since I was a kid that it was referencing some sort of nursery mm-hmm. rhyme, but I don't know which kids where are singing this nursery rhyme because I've never. Yeah, heard. I haven't either. And then it's from the 16th century. Yeah, yeah. So and like nobody's really said it since. Well, but like you know, pocket full of posies and all that kind of shit yeah. is still around. Ashes, ashes. But I guess this is more probably if we were European, we might have heard it. Uh, yeah, I think because that might be it. Uh, I mean the murder. Of one is listed for magpies, which we don't have a lot of magpies here. Mm-hmm. So when they brought it to the U.S., it was murder of crows or murder of jackdaws. Two jackdaws. Other, yeah. I don't hear that bird very often. No. <laughs> <laughs> they changed it for the U.S. Okay. Because we didn't have those birds here. Right. But then sense. it just kind of lost its meaning and nobody's used, really used it. Gotcha. But... I found the 13 of them are kind of interesting. It's almost like the 12 days of Christmas. This is like 13... Crows that crows. you count. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's interesting to go back and look at it. That's fun. I like the message of that song, at least as far as I can infer from it. It's not subtle. He's chanting the word change over and over at the end, which, and you know, like you got to do that. You've got to do that. You must do that. And one of the main themes, I think if there is a main theme in this album, it's mental health issues. Yes. Which makes sense for Adam Duritz, right? Someone who's always been very upfront and open about his struggles with those issues. And lyrically and interviews and everything, Mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, it is maybe not the most happy song, but I get joy out of it at the same time, out Mm -hmm. of its message. Yeah, because I think the only constant in life is change. Right. So, and he's putting that front and center going, you... You have to change. End and center, really, because it's the last yeah. song. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> For me, I had a hard time picking my favorite on this album. And, and picking the weakest, I thought about doing the same thing you did, like ranking them all. Then I was like, well, no, because then I'll actually come up with one that I think is the weakest. And this is the first <laughs> episode where I just couldn't do that. I couldn't come up with the weakest song. But I could come up with a favorite song, and that is Anna Begins. pretty conventional band in a lot of ways kind of traditional in their approach to songwriting but not Anna Begins Anna Begins is it takes you down these weird paths musically you know and then as far as the content of the song it hits me harder now as a 43 year old man than it did you know 30 years ago but it's always been my favorite on the album I think I certainly can relate to the idea of being like, well, I've been burned by love. I'm not even going to try anymore. And then having someone kind of like wear you down, then you find like, okay, I'll open the door. I will love again. And then she disappears. And you're like, oh, well, I'm not ready for that. I wasn't ready for that. Oh, fuck. Um, Yeah, here we are again. (laughs) Should have done that. Try to tell yourself the things you try to tell yourself to make yourself forget. But it's all framed so beautifully that, again, it almost sounds hopeful. It almost sounds like a true love song. But you listen to it a little more deeply, and it's like, oh, this is really sad. Yeah, yeah. I like that one. That one is a kind of more of a special one. My mom's name is Anna. Oh, okay. So it just kind of, I gravitated towards that one. Yeah, I understand. A little bit, so. That makes sense. I actually have a 
connection with my mom in this album too because there was four singles from this album right it was yeah. mr jones round here rain king and murder of one right. but on a local radio station around here called the river that's defunct now that was like adult contemporary that I didn't really listen to, but my mom did back in the day. They played Sullivan Street like it was a single all the time. Really? And she loved Sullivan Street. My mom just like loved this song. <laughs> so like, there's not a lot of bands growing up that I was really into, let alone that I was obsessed with, that she actually dug. And so I was kind of, yeah, I've got like a weird kind of mom connection with this album too, <laughs> which is cool. <laughs> able to come up with an underrated song for this album underrated perfect blue buildings okay i really like that one it's gorgeous. And, and it just i don't know why it just it sounds like it could have been a single for him yeah. but i don't know why they didn't do that Please. really like it i stayed home with my disease in this position familiar darling well i'm a Honestly, I think literally every song on this album could have been a single. Yeah. I mean, like, literally. But you're right. That one almost seems like it was in my memory, but no, it's just beloved. And again, oof, sad. I mean, that's yeah. maybe, the, maybe the saddest song on the album. It's up there. But it's beautiful. Yeah. And yeah, it's not one people talk about as much. didn't go with that one I thought about it I ended up going for my underrated song I went with Omaha I love that one too <sighs> yeah right we love them all yeah. <laughs> yeah Omaha is just such a uh again like it seems like it should have been a single it's so catchy but it's sandwiched right in between uh you know the opener round here a single yeah. and Mr. Jones which is the song of the band whether they like it or not and I never hear people talk about it, but it's one that when it comes on, I'm ready to fucking like I'm ready to you know in my mind it's it's like Beyonce came on or like <laughs> I don't know H2O or something that's completely like that gets people riled up in a way that yeah. Connie Crows doesn't usually get people riled up. <laughs> There's a couple lines that I just, I don't know if he meant, but it sounded like he was talking about religion a couple times. Yeah, the whole walking, walking on water, water thing. <laughs> yeah, would you drop a line my way? So it's like he's drowning and he's looking up and Jesus is walking on water above him, not helping him. And that also gets to another thing about him. So vocally for me, he's always been, because I used to sing in the band and he's probably the person I most consciously emulated and tried to sound like in almost every band I was in. But lyrically i never really thought about it until taking notes and thinking about it deeply the last few weeks getting ready for our episode I'm like man what the fuck is he talking about half the time I, I always feel like i know exactly what he's talking about 
I'm like intuiting it or like assigning my own whatever to it. But in a lot of ways, this shit is really cryptic. And there's a lot of like lyrics in Omaha in particular that I'm like, whoa, I can almost get what you're talking about. But I guess it's partly the appeal, right? Like if it's cryptic poetry, then we can all assign whatever we want to it. Yeah, and we do our own interpretation of it. Yeah. So I already said that I wasn't able to come up with a weakest song. Growing up, I always thought that the weakest song on the album was Ghost Train, but now I do not feel that way at all. I just absolutely love Ghost Train. It stands out as being so different mm -hmm. from the rest of the album, you know, in terms of feel. So I'm going to say that that's my not weakest song. <laughs> Were you able to pick one? Did you slot one to number 11? Uh, I did time and time again. I considered that one. I that did was, consider that. That and Ghost Train were the two I was thinking about. And then it came down, like, down to driving up here. I'm like, well, if I was going to skip a song, which one would I skip? Mm -hmm. And going through it, I got to that one. I'm like, yeah, I would skip this one. I almost said the same. I, I was going to make that choice as well. Actually, when I like all the way up until about yesterday, I was like, I think I have to go with time and time again because... When I'm listening to the album, if there's one that I kind of blur out, you know what I mean? Like where I'm just like not noticing as much, yeah. then it's that song. But when I am into it, especially towards the end of the song, it just builds up. And I was like driving to work yesterday morning and I'm like screaming time and time again to myself in my car. And uh, I was like, oh shit, I can't pick that one either. So I'm just completely <laughs> bailing on my own rule here. And, and, and I'll try not to do that very often. I usually think I can pick a least good one, but I, yeah, I think we did kind of land, I guess, on Ghost Train and Time and Time Again, which are beautiful, great songs that could have been singles in yeah. critique for the listener yeah that's for the listener <laughs> i mean but for the album itself i like it I, I mean i always have though listening to it now when i was doing research i started listening to duritz's band before the oh, Himala I never, I never the Him himalayans okay and i actually heard because around here is actually a cover of their song the himalayans released it first oh i didn't know that and it's a totally different song oh like, it doesn't sound the same. You can tell, but it's heavier, oh, okay. if that makes sense. Yeah. It's more of the kind of pop grunge of the time period, is it, what it sounds like. Just about the front door like a ghost into the fog When no one notices the contrast of weight on weight And in between the morning, you're the angels Get a better view of the crumbling difference between wrong and right Columbia, Geffen? Yeah. DGC. All right, DGC. They're on DGC. It's Geffen, you're right. Because uh, I remember they had that Einstein on the Beach single from the compilation, that DGC Rarities compilation that was pretty good around the same time. It's funny, you know, this album's produced by T-Bone Burnett. Yes. 
And these days we think of him more as a guy who just, hey, he picked the songs that we're listening to in this movie because it's always him and Randall Poster that are picking songs for movies, producing soundtracks like uh, Big Lebowski, for instance, is one he's probably most famous for. He's from Bob Dylan's band, and it's funny that they reference Bob Dylan in Mr. Jones. I can only imagine like T-Bone like sitting there in the studio and be like, hey, Bob, they're talking about you. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember reading this uh, interview in Spin Magazine when that came out, and he was like, immediately after it came out, he's like, I don't want to be Bob Dylan. I want to be Alex Chilton. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, all right. Uh, <laughs> but I think they probably have a complicated relationship with that song because yeah. it's the big hit and everyone wants to hear it, and have you heard live versions of it? No, I have not. They play with it. They really, they'll play it like often at shows, but they really, it's almost unrecognizable from what it used to be. It's a lot slower. It's a lot more like, it's almost like a slow Zydeco jam. Okay. No, it's it's funny, but it's awesome. At least last time I heard it. Oh, they're coming to Cleveland uh, later this month, I think. Yeah, they're coming to Detroit on a weekend. I'm going to be out of town. I'm like, ah, oh, so I'm not going to be able to do it. I'm going to be, I'm going to be seeing no effects that night instead. Oh, okay. So, yeah. <laughs> I have seen them before. Have you seen Counting Crows? I have not, no. They're pretty amazing live. I haven't seen them since the 90s. I saw them twice in the 90s. I saw them after the Long December tour, which was great. I was in the very front, and I remember like getting crushed. And at one point, like... I forget what song. Crush I think at it, a Counting Crows concert? Yeah, well, it was 96, 97. Oh, they, were, yeah. they were at their peak, you know. And I remember, I think it was during Round Here, he actually started just, like, pushing the whole crowd back and, like, in his vocals was, like, singing, like, move back, move back, you're crushing people. <laughs> and the whole crowd just kind of gently, like, oh, yeah, we're at a Counting Crows concert. Just kind of gently moved, like, took four big steps back. And I was like, oh, thank God. Thank you, man. Uh, then I saw him again like at a really big venue for uh, when they did uh, This Desert Life and it was all themed around like the album artwork for that. Do you have any specific memories tied up with this album that you want to get into? The only one would be Mr. Jones and just singing that in the car all the time. Yes. That was when I was learning to drive and stuff so it was always on the radio. So just belting that thing out when yeah. it was down. <laughs> it was a ubiquitous hit. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine them getting nauseated by it, but I'm still not sick of it. No, I'm, I'm not either. I'm still not. Like, every time I hear it, I'm very happy to hear it, and it's still a strong song on that album. Yeah. It really is. And it's also, again, sad. It's so ironic that this is the song that got them super famous, to the point that he actually kind of seemed like he was like pushing back against the fame. Like, I don't want to be this famous. And the lyrics of the song are like, once everybody loves me, I'll be okay. I'll be happy. Things will be good then. If I could just get famous and beloved and yeah. be on the TV. And then he gets so big, he's dating fucking Winona Ryder and that kind of shit. He's so famous and then still... Did he? He did. He's like, yeah. fucker. <laughs> but who could blame them? I mean, that voice as an artist, like he's he's very um, engaging. You know? Yeah. It's hard to believe he wrote that song drunk. Did he really? Yeah. Because he wrote it about a night him and uh, one of his buddies... Mr. Jones? Yeah, Marty Jones. Okay. He was a bass player. Yeah. But they were hanging out, and they were actually hanging out at New Amsterdam in San Francisco. Okay. Bar, and they were watching another... Uh, a flamenco dancer? A black-haired yeah. flamenco dancer? Yeah. And looking yeah. at a yellow-haired girl? Yeah. <laughs> um, because they were watching... Kenny Johnson. He was a drummer for Chris Isaac. Okay. And they were watching him. And he had a bunch of girls around talking to him. And uh, he said they were both just kind of watching him and everything. Yeah, and but, envying like the attention that the, he was getting as a musician and that kind of stuff. Yeah, Marty's dad was actually a flamenco player. He played guitar. So that's yeah. why they were there watching it. But they were just getting drunk and watching this yeah. other guy play for Chris Isaac and seeing him get all the women. So he stumbled home and scrawled out the lyrics in yep. a kind of a jealous stupor. Yeah, and Mr. Jones is who he was hanging out with. That's And stumbling through the barrio. Yeah, yep. that makes sense. Very literal song. And again, I'm not surprised that it's about California. So many of their songs end up being about... I mean, yeah, I mean, like, the dude is obsessed. I mean, the whole, like, let's go get a taco. Yeah, <laughs> fucking, I love it. <laughs> I think, for me, one of my favorite memories about this album... I've debated what kind of stories I'm going to tell about my personal life on this show that usually mean me editing out times I did hallucinogens, but I'll okay. tell this story. Uh, the first time I ever did karaoke, I was 21 at a bar in Orlando. Wow. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do around here. But I also had dropped acid. 
but it hadn't kicked in yet. Oh, no. So I was a little buzzed, and like just acid was like just kicking in, and I got up on the stage, and I did round here, and I like, I did it as best as I possibly could. And like the, everyone was like politely clapping, and like everyone was like, oh, that, you know, I got some nice compliments, and I'm like, okay, I think I like karaoke, that was nice. And then my time to go again came up a little bit later, mm-hmm. and me and my buddy Charles, who was also engaged in the hallucinogenic activities, decided it would be a good idea to get up on this stage doing karaoke, a screamo version of Escape Club's Wild Wild West. <laughs> um, no one liked it. I, okay. I'm not surprised. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we did. Me and, yeah, yeah, we did. <laughs> you guys did. But I, I'm a big karaoke guy. I've always done a lot of karaoke uh, since, and it's like that was what I burst my bubble with, which made sense for me oh i've only ever done karaoke once i just i can't sing yeah if it's something you don't enjoy then it's like hell for you but for me singing has always been something it's like dancing or whatever it's just kind of like a cathartic letting loose kind of feeling that i get from it just give me a pair of drumsticks i'm good ah see everyone's got their thing yeah there you go so it sounds like for you also this is one of those ride or die forever albums never stop listening to it yeah i had it on cd and then once digital became big i have it on digital so it's constant yeah same i've never ever stopped since 93 never stopped one of my all-time maybe maybe top five favorite albums it's just really 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 important to me did you stick with them and their other work that they put out or did you kind of tune out i followed them for a little while the one they released uh, when we were working together because i remember it came out we came in like like (sighs) after that weekend the covers album underwater sunshine no, it was uh, Rain... I forget. Not Somewhere Over the Rainbow, but something like that. Rain, uh, Raining in... Baltimore? Is that everything? Ra- no. <laughs> uh... Oh, Saturday Night and Sunday Mornings. No, 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 no. No, that, that's that, not That it. was 2008. That's 2008. And that's fantastic. That is fantastic. That's such a great album. No, the 2014, I think, is what you're thinking of. It's like a blue album. It came out after Underwater Sunshine. Oh, Somewhere Under Wonderworld. Somewhere Under Wonderworld. That yeah. album is a bit of a dud. Yeah. And so is the covers album, frankly. So, like, the 2010s, not a great run for them. They had that, that live album in there. Like, I didn't tune out then, but I just hadn't been... You know, I listened to everything they've ever put out. But those two albums, I was like, oh, oh, all right, well, that's kind of, I think they're starting to lose their edge. I don't know if you've listened to uh, the four-song EP they put out recently. No, I haven't heard I mean, that it's, I think it's what they're touring in support for. It's like a fucking four-song EP, but it's no. really, really good. Okay. It's I got the song. that one out. Uh, the first song's called The Tall Grass, and I think it's one of the better things I've heard from them in, well, literally like a decade. There is some good stuff on those other, those 2010s albums for sure, but they're not up to snuff compared to what came before that, this desert life and stuff. Yeah, it's hard to live up to some of this, especially when they have the success of the previous albums. Yeah, yeah. I do get the feeling that they're lifers. I'm disappointed I'm not going to see them come through, but I'm like, I feel like they're not done. They're a working band. You know what I mean? I feel like we'll get a chance yeah, to see them. Yeah, because there's a lot of bands that are just not around anymore. Right. From 93, 94, so... These guys never really stopped. Yeah, they just kept going. Yeah. I mean, there was some lulls and some years where they didn't release a lot of stuff, right. but, I mean, they've been together ever since. They haven't broken up, officially or unofficially. They're waking up, Maria, because everybody else has got some place to go. She makes a little motion with her head rolls over says she's gonna sleep for a couple minutes more I said I'm sorry to Maria for the cold-hearted thing that I have done Charlie Gillingham plays piano and all that other kind of stuff yeah and then Matt Malley on bass Steve Bowman on drums David Bryson on guitars for this album at least yeah, and Steve Bowman, for some reason, his nickname is The Skin Doctor. <laughs> I couldn't find out what that was in reference to, so maybe I don't want to know. He is the drummer, right? Yep. Okay, good, good. Because the, <laughs> then we understand what it means. It just still sounds disturbing. It sounds like an Alex Cross book, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like, like Morgan Freeman's going to be chasing the, the Skin Doctor. <laughs> uh. 
did you figure out what song you want to use to go out on? To go out on, I'd like to do Murder of One. Being okay. my favorite, and I think one of the strongest, top three strongest of the album, I think okay. that would be the best one. That's what we'll use. In August and everything after, you get a little less than you expected somehow. Yeah, it was hard to believe that of the singles, one of them didn't chart, and the Which highest um, murder of one didn't chart. That's wild. Mr. Jones peaked at number five. It did? Yeah. It never hit number one? It never hit number one. I'm shocked. Uh, Round Here didn't chart either. Really? Yeah. I at least not here in the U.S. Uh. And Rain King charted at 66. In the U.S. 66. 66. Maybe they're more famous in my brain than they are in reality. Now, if you go to Canada... Round Here peaked at 6, and Rain King peaked at 18. They simply have better musical taste in Canada. This is a fact. And then in Iceland, Round Here came in 12th, and Rain King was 4th. Nice. Good taste out there, too. Yeah. For what I hear. Yeah, you know, this was a really crowded time in American music. 94, 93. Because this came out in 93, but I feel like uh, Mr. Jones... Yeah, Mr. Jones was like a single... I think even in before the album came out, I want to say late summer of 93. No? No, three months after. Three months after the album came out? So yeah. Mr. Jones was released as a single around Christmas? Uh, December 1st. Oh, shit. Yeah. I guess I probably maybe didn't become as aware of it until the following spring, because I remember in my head it being very much associated with summer and like light and being outside. Maybe that's when it like picked up as a single or, or something. I don't know. Or memory is a weird thing, especially when you start going 30 years back. Yeah, it's hard to remember some things. Yeah. I will say this. I I cannot possibly convey how much I love this album. We've been talking for like a half hour. We could talk 10 times this, <laughs> and I will just repeat myself over and over again. But I would cut a lung out for this album. I love it so much. Yeah, it's definitely top 10. Yeah, it's so It's beautiful. I, it'd be one of those ones where at the end of your life, you just list... 10 albums it's going to be in there for me too absolutely and you know this cover you know this classic fucking cover with that font it's just so it's just so warm you know it's just so warm it's and the whole thing that cover those words are actually the lyrics for the song August and everything after which they exists. never which exists they never released it on. it didn't make the cut for the album yeah but Amazon actually released it back in January 24th of 2019 when it all catches up to me And they finally bring me down Do you think I'm gonna cry? Well listen I already got my disease So get your fucking filthy hands off of me I hope you weren't expecting me to be crucified The best that they can do is just to hang me from the tree yeah it's midnight in san francisco and i am waiting here for jesus on my knees in august and everything after i need somebody else to bleed for me yeah in august and everything after somebody else to bleed for me so 26 years later they actually released the song that the album's named after i feel like i heard it as a bootleg before that i know i'd heard it somewhere you know back in the lime wire days oh yeah you know what i mean <laughs> well, but i didn't lime wire and <laughs> all that shit yeah i heard it back then and uh, some of the other outtakes from this album that ended up being on. They've released a live version of this album. They've released like an extended version of this album with other live songs and stuff. Yep. Like they certainly recognize the importance of this album in their careers, that's for sure. And have uh, attributed it dutifully, I think. Oh, I'm, yeah. They've done a wonders with re-releases and adding the additional tracks. The, there's one from Paris, too. It's amazing. Yeah. And the live versions of these songs. They had that live album from Amsterdam. They had the Roadshow one, which I feel echoes of the, what is it, echoes of the whatever, the one from the 2010s. Yeah. They have the entire live album of this, and then they have the special edition of this. Have you heard the VH1 Storytellers one like that they did Across the Lines or uh, whatever it's called? It's like a double disc album. Oh, no, I haven't. 
I strongly recommend that. It's a double disc live album, and it's got actually one song on it. It's from this era, and the song is called Chelsea. It's one of their very best songs. That's the only place you can find it is live on that album, so definitely recommend that album. My point being, though, that usually I get irritated when bands take songs that I love and start playing with them for years later and, like, you know, reworking them, but they do it beautifully. They do a really great job with all their stuff. Agreed, yeah. So what else are you listening to? Anything else of late? Any new albums or old albums? Or? Uh, as of late, Uncle Lucius. Not familiar. Uh, album and You Are Me. It's a little bit older. Okay. But I really enjoy it. What's the genre? Rock, I guess, would be the easiest way to, okay. easiest way to put it. Okay. It doesn't really fall into alternative or anything. So cool. one of the subcategories of rock. <laughs> <laughs> um, Red Light King. Yeah. I've heard of that. Yeah. He actually sampled Old Man from Neil Young. Yeah. And created a new song and does a little bit of rap in it. So okay. it's a rock rap type deal. It's kind of, it's interesting. Okay. It's something different. And then uh, Mo Lauda and Humble. Yeah. Are, the, are these all newer bands? Uh, last 10 years. Yeah. I've checked out, <laughs> man. I don't know what the years. fuck's going on the last 10 years. Talk to me about the 90s. <laughs> oh, I've been getting... But too, I was listening to the new Smashing Pumpkins and then the new Godsmack that's come okay. out. It's not like their old stuff. I mean, I, I like it. Am I going to listen to it like I did the stuff from the 90s? No. That's what I'm saying. A lot of times these bands, they start declining in output, no matter how great they were back in the day. That's why I was so pleased with this new four-song single from Connie Crows. I'm like, oh, they do got some juice left in that in that Capri Sun of their band or whatever <laughs> the fuck. Um I've been listening to a lot of Fugazi, which I never listened to Fugazi much, but suddenly I've been listening to a whole bunch of them. And on the other end of that spectrum, I've been listening to a lot of early They Might Be Giants. So okay. that's yeah. what I've been doing. Uh, that was darn nice there, Mr. Duritz. Uh, any comments from the bridge? <laughs> All right, I have one last question for you. Oh, okay. One last question. You and I met at a bookstore. Yes. This should be an easy one, I think. There are five bookstores I'm going to give you the option for. Because in the 1990s, how much did we all love going to some fucking random bookstore that was set up as some mega media conglomerate, whatever, and you could browse vinyl (laughs) and you could browse magazines and books and get some coffee and read a graphic novel and not pay for it and then (laughs) go somewhere else. You know, the overstuffed armchairs. Oh, so I miss those. Me too, man. I miss all of those. Oh. And Barnes & Noble, where you and I worked, still yeah. exists. So I'm going to give you some options. The first two technically still exist, but we're going to go back in time. Okay. In the late 90s, let's say, when they're at their peak, right? Which one of these locations would you be most likely to go and spend an afternoon and as little money as possible. Oh, as little money as possible. Well, you know what I mean. Because, yeah. <laughs> like, you'd go and you'd read their stuff. And, and Yeah. And you'd walk out with a CD or a movie or a book or something or two. But, like, you would have also just kind of use their stuff like a library. Yeah. So, Barnes & Noble, of course. Books a Million, which has been around since 1916 or something. I had no wow. fucking idea. Yeah, I, I didn't thought, either. I thought that was new. And it's still around, so we could go there. But let's go further back. B. Dalton. Oh, right? wow. Yeah. B. Dalton Bookstore. The old mall bookstore. The old mall bookstore. And then the other old mall bookstore, which was Walden Books. Yes, that too. Right? I bought many a book from both of those places. Same. <laughs> yeah, those would be like the B line when I went to the mall. But they didn't have like the whole setup, say, that the last option has, which is Borders, of course. Oh, yeah. Michigan's own Borders. Mm-hmm. So which one would you go to? I would have to say... Ugh. Barnes & Noble holds a special place after working there for 20 years. Was it 20 years that you worked there? Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. It was a while. <laughs> I was there for, I think, two. I'm going to have to say Borders. The first CD I ever bought was from Borders. Oh, yeah. And it was with a gift certificate. Nice. So. Dude, I mean, coming from Michigan, I, I used to regularly frequent the Borders number one in Ann Arbor, the first store. They'd have, like, bands play there and stuff. It was so great. And then even the one that they built, like, in Brighton that I would go to, you could just spend a whole afternoon there. I'm definitely going to betray Barnes & Noble. They only paid me minimum wage. I'm going to <laughs> Borders Books and Music, and it almost seems wild to me that they went out of business, but 
I guess it's just the way that content has moved. It's all digital now. So. Yeah, everything's changed from that point. So they were behemoths. Even, yeah, like even the Barnes Nobles now are. It's not like it was before. Yeah, and it never will be. But in our mind, we can hang out and sip our whatever latte and read Borders books. Yep. I still listen to that CD. I still have it. What CD? What is it? Uh, CCR uh, Chronicle. What's Chronicle? One or one. two? One is the uh, that's the, that was yeah that was one that has um, Born on the Bayou in it. Right? Yeah, that was the one I didn't have. I had Chronicle two, but I will say that both of those Chronicle albums made our whole generation big fan of CCR because it seems like everybody I know had one or the other or both. Yeah, I had Chronicle 1. That was the first one I bought on CDs and I have it on vinyl now too. But yeah, that's always one that keeps getting played. Yeah. And uh, to bring it back to the Counting Crows, I feel like they too will be like one of those long-lasting bands that our kids' kids, well, I'm not having any fucking kids, but my friends' kids' kids <laughs> will be listening to. <laughs> yeah, we'll make them listen to it. <laughs> Whether they want to or not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, man. Thank you so much for making the trip out here again. You and I are now going to go get some lunch, and we're going to go to a brewery and enjoy ourselves, right? It sounds good to me. Maybe we can write a song. <laughs> Mr. Just... Roy. <laughs> uh, as a teacher, that just has like a different connotation for me, because now it seems like I'm supposed to like... Uh, I'll tell you to learn something. <laughs> Go learn something. All right. Thanks, man. All right. Well, thanks. philosophical for a moment bear with me one of the weirder memories i have attached to this album august and everything after involves a dream i think that i had uh or more likely just audio seeping into my consciousness while i was asleep when i was growing up i used to have over my bed a collection of cassette tapes in shelving units on the wall above me and then below that against the wall was my radio that I kept in the bed with me and I slept with every night. And sometimes I would go to sleep with it on, but more often than not, I would wake up and turn it on. And I had this weird memory, dream, whatever, of hearing the song Rain King in my sleep, like in a dream, and then waking up and then turning the radio on and it being on the radio. Now, the reality, of course, is that me turning the radio on is probably something that my brain has implanted in there. The reality is that the almost certainly that the radio was already on while I was asleep. And then I woke up and heard what was already playing. That's what makes sense. So that's probably what happened. But for a long time, I felt like I had this weird psychic kind of blip where I knew what song was going to be on the radio before I turned the radio on. And in a weird way, that's kind of how I've always felt about this album in a way because when you're 12, 13, 14 years old, it's a very transitional period in your life. It's like you're coming out of a dream of childhood, you know, where things are fuzzy and inchoate and unfocused. And then you get the, you know, the bitter clarity of adulthood. <laughs> so, yeah, this album has been such a key part of those years of my life, like so many other albums that I've discussed on this show. I mean, it's why I've chosen these years, really, to be the focal point of the show. Not just the fact that I think great music came out of those two years, but because that was when I felt like I was coming to life in a way. Very awesome for Adam to come back and talk about this album with me. It means a lot. He's a great dude. Maybe you want to come on the show and talk about an album from 93 or 94 with me. That would be very cool. I'd love it if you did. You could pick pretty much any album you want that I haven't already covered. Just let me know. And if you need like some prompting, maybe you'd be interested in talking about the Flaming Lips album Transmissions from the Satellite Heart. All right, that's from the era. That would make sense. She don't use jelly or 
We can talk about whatever you want. You can uh, also email me at 9394podcast at gmail.com. That is the numerical 9394podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. You can find me on the social medias the same way. This is a fledgling podcast still. I'm still getting things going here. If you're a regular listener, please do me a favor and rate, review, subscribe, follow, whatever method the platform you're using has to give podcasts a boost. That would be much appreciated. Thanks. And, um, yeah. Okay. That's it. Bye. Three ninety four, a music podcast with Travis Roy is a labor of love. It is not and never will be monetized. Please don't sue.